1: Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversations of the tech world and beyond. And we are coming to you this week from Davos in collaboration with the Web3 Foundation and Unfinished. Our guest today is Vivian Schiller. She is the executive director at Aspen Digital, the former head of news at Twitter, which is fun and we'll talk about, and the former CEO of NPR. Vivian, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: It's great having you here. We're going to get into everything happening at Davos. I think this will be an episode that will focus mostly on elites. Before we get into it, I want to let folks know that um, I'll be continuing this discussion on my LinkedIn page like we do with each conversation. So if you have questions or feedback, come on over there. There'll be a specific post about this episode and we look forward to hearing from you. So, Vivian, this is interesting. It's our first time in Davos. Um, Right now, the meeting of the World Economic Forum is going on. It's an annual meeting of really the world's elites, business leaders, corporate leaders. Um, We had never seen it before. It's a great time to discuss our impressions of it. I'll start. It kind of gives me the willies to be here. Um, It feels like those in power um, are finding ways to continue to stay in power. And that's what this meeting is all about. At least it looks. that's what it looks like from the outside. Neither of us, I think, have been led into the main discussion. What do you think?
0: Well, yeah, that's the thing is, you know, people have asked me or, you know, uh, my, my colleagues at home going, how's Davos? What is it like? I'm, and my answer is, I actually have no idea. I mean, I've been here for a few days now, but it's hard to really Put my finger on what the experience is. Partly because, like you said, I am—I am not one of the anointed. I don't have the fancy white badge that gets me into the Congress uh, Center where the where the WeF meetings are happening. So um, you know, we are amongst the scrum. Um, Walking up and down the promenade, where uh, which is f- more like a trade show, um, you know, th- that has taken over this mountain town road than anything else. So I don't. I mean, is that the Davos experience? I don't know. I've never been here before. Um, that said, um, it's been fun to run into a lot of old friends. I've um, to, and to meet new ones. So it's been interesting in that sense. But it it's a little weird.
1: Yeah. And the forum has come under fire, at least in the past few years, for something that they called the Great Reset, um, which is this agenda that they've put forward, basically saying that they want to take advantage of the opportunity that COVID gives them in order to reset. And um, and some of the, the things that they talk about, I mean, here I have some of it from their agenda here, um, So they say to achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. And they also say the future of they're they're trying to influence the future of state global relations the directions of national economies, the priorities of societies, the nature of business models, and the management of a global commons. Now, the the World Economic Forum has come out and said this message wasn't received well. Well, no, no kidding. Yeah, really. Uh, it, it does. It does seems seems a little inappropriate for a gathering. I mean, I understand the desire to improve society, but the way that they phrase it really is, uh, in the words of some, "You're saying the quiet part out loud." where, you know, you ask why people are turned off by groups like this. And it really is, I think, yeah. a r- fact that they say out loud that they're trying to influence like some of some things that you would never want, you know, groups like this try to to influence social contracts, societies and economies. I mean, what, right. what and it's influential people here that are trying to do right. it.
0: Yeah. What do you well, think? I I mean, there's two big problems, Um, two two categories of problems. One my god, the elitism is just, you know, and I say this as, you know, you and I are arguably or many would look at at us as the elite. I'm looking at this group going, wow, really? I mean, it's the ultimate ivory tower and sort of the hubris of suggesting that this small group of mostly white men, um, that's changing a little bit, but I think not much, can sort of, you know, pull the strings to try to affect, you know, populations around the world. And and control them is is you know uh, problematic. And the other thing is, and I guess these two things are related. It's sort of flying in the face of a of a backlash to what. And I'm if you're not looking at me, I am using air quotes. Globalists, you know, the rise of autocracies around the world, um, the anti democratic forces, including in the United States. Uh, you know, they they feed on the the world economic forums of the world and say this is exactly uh, what we're fighting against. You know, this sort of ethno nationalists that are on the rise.
1: And it, and it is that's absolutely correct. Uh, and it is interesting that the forum continues to, um, you know seem to conduct business as usual with, with little self-reflection, except for this. I'm going to play a clip from one of the recent uh, meetings, and this is, if there are folks here who are realignment listeners and who've come over through there, this is from uh, Breaking Points, so shout out to Sagar and Jetty for highlighting this clip on a recent show.
0: At Davos, a few years ago, you know the Edelman survey showed us that the good news is the elite across
1: the world trust each other more and more. So we can come together and design and do beautiful things together. The bad news is that in every single
0: country they were polling, the majority of people trusted that elite less.
1: Pretty unbelievable. Elites trust each other more, but the people in the the countries they're coming from are trusting them less. Why is that?
0: Well, for all the reasons that we've been talking about. I mean... There's so many – look, you know, uh, there there are, are many uh, brilliant minds around the world trying to dissect the sort of this trend that we're seeing happening around the world, um, which is sort of an anti-global perspective, a more nationalist, a more ethno-nationalist um, agenda in, in so many countries, which frankly um, uh, reviles uh, – Expertise, uh, evidence, um, knowledge, and education. I mean, I see this so starkly in the United States with the rise of the far right. Sorry, I'm immediately jumping over there. And it is, um, you know, a lot of the message is don't listen to these elites. Listen to us. We are the populists. It's a very anti-democratic movement. Um you know the, the the elites, I guess, are are not helping the matter by um, sort of staying above the fray in ma- in many cases. But um, it's really sort of scary what's what's happening. Yeah, and, in uh, so many places.
1: Yeah, and, and so you hinted at it, but I'm curious what you think it it fuels, what fuels these movements. Now, of course, like you know, there of course some of it is messaging, but there must oh, well. in people's in people's lives they must feel like I was actually looking on Twitter right before you jumped in and. Uh, Klaus Schwab, who's the head of the uh, World Economic Forum, is trending. I'm like, oh, what did he make a speech oh or gosh. something like that? And it's filled with hate for him. And yeah. people must be seeing something in their everyday life and everyday lives that are not making them trust the people who are running governments and the people who are running corporations, yeah. the Davos set. What do you think that is? What's well, going on there?
0: There's a lot of things that are happening simultaneously. Um, economic inequality, um, <laughs> a global pandemic. Uh the uh, climate change, um, the as I as I mentioned, sort of the rise of, of 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 populism, and a lot of it being fueled by very effective propaganda. I will call it propaganda um, coming from many corners, and fueled in large part by many social media platforms. Mm-hmm. So it's this toxic brew of actual real life. Uh, challenges that are and then are platforms that are tapping into our passions and fueling our outrage. It's it's it. This is a problem in every country around the world, and it leads to serious real life
1: consequences. So is the answer then that, you know, these elites really need to clean up, Uh, clean up the stuff that gives fuel to to some of the anti-elite.
0: Well, you know, the interesting fuel. thing is if you look at the at the most recent Edelman survey which you which you referenced, which is such a valuable tool, um, yes, that you know, people don't trust elites, but if you look at sort of the categories of do people trust government officials? Absolutely not. Do people trust, you know, journalists and media, sorry for you and me, but absolutely not. Um, the interesting thing is the highest level of trust in terms of category actually is corporate leaders. And companies, um, I'm not necessarily talking about the, you know, the people who are gathering here in Davos, although frankly, many of them are here, mm-hmm. um, but the the fact that companies, I guess, maybe by default, because what other institutions are left for you to trust, um, uh, have, have, and maybe because it's, you know, these companies are part of people's lives, or, uh, you know, members of the public work for these companies, they are employees, that there is a higher level of trust and it actually gives corporations an opportunity to use that trust uh, for good. This is something I've been talking about a lot here when it comes to all kinds of uh, societal issues. That's different. Let me just be really clear. That's different than what I'm talking about in terms of the World Economic Forum. I'm talking about in their, in in the way that they communicate with their employees, in the way that they communicate with their uh with their public, their customers, how they spend their money. Don't forget, corporations are the economic engine for social media. So what are they spending on? How much money are they giving to Meta? How much money are they giving to other platforms? You know, they have tremendous power. So
1: yeah, yeah, it's I, t- int-
0: I took your question in a slightly different direction, no, but well, I wanted to make the point. It
1: is a good point, and it's something that I think about a lot. And we can talk about tech regulation and stuff in the second half, but it's something I think about a lot when it comes to Regulating the tech companies because you look at the approval. There's no denying it. You look at the approval rating of Amazon and and um, companies like Google. They're like second to the military. <laughs> then you look at the approval rating of journalists and members of Congress. No, it's terrible. And it's yeah, yeah. A, at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. But I'm curious why you think that is because aren't the law so like I wonder if people are actually directing their ire about what because. The economy is a natural product of what the corporations do. And the economy is one that is creating a winners and losers society. When no. things like CEO pay, for instance, where it's multiple times, I mean, CEO pay, how many, um, you know, median salaries can you fit into, you know, average typical pay that's going to a CEO? I and mean, of course they earn the money, but the disparities are really some but of the But Alex, fuel. you're mixing
0: up logic with feelings, <laughs> Yeah, so just like more. an elite. You're, you're such an elite. You're trying to use evidence and logic. And actually, the sense of, you know, for better or for worse, when people feel trust, it's not necessarily the logical consequence of the, the thought process that you just went through. And it's easy to see why people like in the United States, you know, have have such low trust for members of Congress. And the media. First of all, members of Congress. You know, it's it's just become. You know, Congress has become a more and more of a toxic place. And because uh, Congress is so polarized, there's very little getting done. It's hard to feel good about, uh, no matter what party you are, are uh, to feel good about what's happening, or as a case may be, not happening in Congress. And when it comes to the media, don't forget the word media is very broad. So the media includes evidence-based, uh, you know, fact-based. Uh, Sourced journalism, um, but it also includes um, a lot of junk, frankly, or propaganda, uh, or things that your your you know your cousin posted on Facebook uh, as some kind of you know piece of evidence. And to most people, all of that is the media, and a lot of it is untrustworthy. A lot of it is you know stirring up emotions. Um, a lot of it is just you know uh, propagating and just downright falsehoods. All of that is media. And because our society, not just in the United States, but everywhere is so polarized, people are feeling very tribal about their media. So when they say, do they trust the media? They trust their own media. They don't trust the other guy. But that's what's bringing those numbers down.
1: Yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, they should trust us. They shouldn't trust them. I think that what? there's, <laughs> I, I I mean, you know, maybe that's the case, but I think that there is, there is reason across the board and I am again. Like I think that you're right. Where is this feeling coming from? Yeah, is is my is my question. Yeah, and I mean, go ahead.
0: No, I just want to say one other thing. We were talking about a lot of the real world um, problems that are that are feeding into this emotion, and then and then being sort of amplified by social media. We talked about economic um, uh, disparities. We talked about the pandemic. We talked about climate change. We also didn't talk about. I I should have mentioned, and I want to just make the point here that and this is so true in the United States and I know in other parts of the world, racism, I'm just going to call it what it is. Um, You know, a lot of times people use sugarcoat that expression, but um, there is still tremendous racism, um, uh, homophobia, anti-Semitism bubbling below the surface that is now being given greater voice and horrifyingly greater acceptance um, because there are platforms where uh, it has been allowed to propagate, so um, that is also, uh, without a doubt, uh, a, a, a one uh, you know feeding into frustration around the world, particularly for underrepresented communities, and understandably so.
1: It is also interesting in the U.S. in particular, where you know the Democrat the Democratic Party says that they're you know against that or trying to trying to fight against you know the tide of racism. Um, you have more and more Latino voters who are moving towards the Republican Party.
0: Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, I uh, maybe the
1: message isn't landing.
0: Maybe the message. And I also isn't
1: think landing. that I'm going to add one more thing. There's, there's an it's an attitude issue too, in my opinion, where like oftentimes people feel that there's, you know, the elites are like this stuff that I'm reading about the Great Reset, the, the that you know. An a, a organization would have the audacity to talk about shaping all these important things. It doesn't come top down. It does come bottom up. And there is a smugness with some of these organizations where they feel that they actually have the answers. And, you know, that that must be dictated yeah. to the bo- you know bottom yeah. down versus have this come up democratically. Yeah. And what's the answer? Yeah. A nationalist can say that these people who have been promising you democracy don't really care about it. What we care about, and we, we actually are speaking to you, right? And you don't have, you know, what's what do you have to lose at this point?
0: Yeah, yeah. The far right and the populists are, are are quite good at messaging. Mm-hmm. That's a fact.
1: Let's talk, one, you know, a bit more about corporations because there's been this move towards stakeholder versus shareholder capitalism. Uh, Shareholder capitalism is all about trying to make the most money you possibly can. Um, Stakeholder capitalism, which has been advanced by the group here, is all about companies getting more involved in social social issues. I wonder if that's working because, you know, I think that both the far right and the far left are skeptical of that. And and I was reading a, a piece about it earlier, about this great reset, which said that You know, uh, stakeholder capitalism is giving corporations more power over society and democratic institutions less. What is your view on it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, look, you know, first of all, you know, the companies that we're talking about ultimately are beholden to their no matter. Yes, putting aside stakeholder uh, motivations, they are you know, beholden to their share, they are legally beholden to their shareholders. So that's number one. So you can understand why a company might be reluctant to take a stand on a controversial issue for fear of alienating their customer base. Um, So that's completely understandable. On the other hand, I think more and more um, CEOs don't have a choice but to take a stand on, on, on certain issues. For starters, before you even talk about customers and before you even talk about, you know, member, you know, politicians, let's talk about the employee base, you know, the employee basis of these companies are, are more and more empowered um, to speak up and to express themselves to their leadership about what they demand from the company that they work for. I mean, look at Disney as sort of the, the sort of the poster child um, for this issue, the CEO uh, tried to avoid getting embroiled Disney, of course, you know, it's, it's, most important property, Disney World, is in Florida, where uh, there have been a number of extremely um, uh, controversial uh, pieces of legislation, state legislation being in, in, introduced, um, including about you know banning the teaching of uh, of you know various forms of of uh, you know LBG, LBGTQ, um, uh
1: Uh, Don't say gay bill.
0: Reality. Don't say gay bill. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Um, And Disney tried to just not comment, saying, Mm. you know, you can understand the motivation. I completely get it. We're just going to stay out of this. You know, we're a big part of the economic engine. We have a lot of employees in Florida. And so the CEO was silent. Um, But the employees wouldn't stand for it and absolutely demanded that Disney speak out against the don't say gay bill, which they did. And now uh, they have become the absolute bullseye target for Governor DeSantis to say, you know, Disney is this woke company and we're going to take away all of their, you know, their economic uh, benefits that they get from the state. Never mind that the, the citizens of the state would then have to pay for it. And, you know, y- y- you can't win. But, but you also can't stay on the sidelines.
1: Yeah. And it's so crazy, I think, for a Republican governor to now talk about corporations need to bend to government will or the government oh. will enforce its power. And it goes against any conservative value.
0: The hypocrisy yeah. is
1: just sort of it's,
0: stunning and, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and shameless.
1: Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I've given it a lot of crap at this point in the podcast, but I do think that this idea of stakeholder capitalism is important. We have had um, a long period of time where companies would just do the ruthless thing because that's what they felt that they had to do based off of what our society wanted, and that we there's this there was this crazy belief that if you were to do the most the thing to maximize shareholder value, then society gets better directly as a result. Where clearly that's just not the case.
0: And I, you know. Maybe you can call me Pollyanna, but I, I I do see a lot of companies that actually are rising to the moment, and um, you know we'll see how far it goes. But uh, I think that there is a recognition that actually sort of values based leadership can be uh, lead to the best business outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see how how far that stretches as we move into say at least in the United States a a, a post Roe v Roe v Wade world where companies are going to have to make decisions about whether they're going to potentially violate state law by paying for employees to leave uh, the state to get an abortion. I mean, it's going to get very, very tricky. But I do see company a lot of companies doing the right thing, you know, even on the global stage.
1: Yeah. And and it's also the way that you we, we at a certain point in our society, we actually believed in build like building a Strong middle class through the way our corporations yeah. were to treat employees. Now, I won't I won't dispute that we we're living in the wealthiest moment in time and actually the median household is doing better now than they have in the past. But there was this attitude back in the day where like Ford, for instance, would want to pay its employees enough so that they'd be able to buy the cars. And now we have corporations where that's that's really not the case. Yeah. And, you know, maybe stakeholder capitalism isn't that you grind your frontline <laughs> workers into the ground to the yeah. point where they have medical issues. They can't they can't pay their bills. They're on food stamps um, and actually is paying. And, and maybe this is me asking too much of our economy yeah. right now. Well, but that's why the you living,
0: see a rise of unions. Uh, forming in many in many mm-hmm. pockets around the country in the United States. It
1: is interesting because we're actually starting to see that in the tech world, yeah. where for the first time an Amazon warehouse has been unionized, right. although soon after one that was nearby lost. Yeah. And I'm trying to, you know, for my reporting, discern whether this is a movement or a moment. And it does seem that Amazon's targeting of Chris Smalls, who was the union organizer in Staten Island, actually was... a key reason why that warehouse or fulfillment center, as they like to call it unionized. Um, I wonder, do you think that this moment can have, and we're seeing some unionization pushes inside Apple. Do you, do you think this moment can actually be the launch of something or is it just an anomaly? Yeah. I, I tend to think it's an anomaly, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah.
0: Well, unlike the WEF elites, I don't have all the
1: answers. I'm so sorry, <laughs> Alex. So
0: I really don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so, uh, but it's been interesting certainly to follow. Um, a lot of media organizations are, are unionizing, too. It's interesting that journalists uh, are unionizing um, at greater levels uh, in the United States. And um, that matters not just, I mean, it's a small industry compared to other industries.
1: On the other hand, uh, these are the people that tell the stories. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was at BuzzFeed News when there was the middle of a unionization push. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know if it was successful. Because, you know, they did unionize, but the newsroom's being cut in half. I wonder how you think that will, or more than half, since yeah. uh, since the heyday. How do you think the fact that the media business is so tough to make it in, how does that kind of square with these unionization right. pushes in newsrooms?
0: Well, unionization doesn't necessarily guarantee that your company's going to be successful and be able to continue to pay you. Uh, it, it you know that w- when it's done right, a union just a, a a union movement just makes sure that you are paid for the work that you do, but of course, you can't protect your job in the long run, and a lot of these you know the BuzzFeeds of the world, that sort of middle strata of, of kind of early startups, a lot of them are this is a whole other podcast uh, that we'll do another time, but you know are really are failing now. it's sad
1: yes. Vivian Chiller is here. She is the executive director at Aspen Digital, former head of news at Twitter. Why don't we talk about Twitter and other big tech companies on the other side of this break?
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan,
1: ceos hr leaders investors and more be a part of the conversation that changes everything subscribe to redefining work today and we're back here on big technology podcast with vivian schiller uh vivian i want to say thank you for uh just coming into my uh conversation with nick clegg it was great to have you there um,
0: quite interesting
1: you know we've talked about it in the past uh, afterwards so I want to break down some of what he said but I also am curious you know I, I mentioned this in in the interview um, with him and it's kind of been my favorite stat to cite recently but Facebook was worth a trillion dollars uh, last summer now it's worth about half of that um, how do you think this economic downturn is going to change the way that we look at uh, the way these tech companies operate or
0: I, I mean I'm skeptical that it will we'll see but um, mm-hmm. You know the the uh, even even with all that uh, even with all those losses, uh, you know the numbers we're talking about are still pretty astronomical. Mm. I, I you know I'm I'm sorry that these executives have you know lost a few a billion of their net worth, but uh, I just wonder if it's really going to uh, impact um, you know unless things really fall apart, it's really going to impact their their strategies.
1: And so you've been um, you've run news organizations before. Indeed, you've, you're a journalist. Um, we talked. Nick, Nick and I talked a little bit about how Facebook pulled, uh, shut down basically news site pages or blocked their links on Facebook when Australia tried to make it pay um, to run those links on its site. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, Nick Clegg um, is is really not lacking in in, in confidence. <laughs> um, that was the that was the 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 the, the biggest impression. <laughs> um, you know, I found. I'll come back to your comment in a second, but he really sort of. You you did a great job of you know presenting him with with all of the all of the uh, uh, accusations that had been leveled against them. Many of them true, and he kind of waved everything off mm. um, and sort of dismissed it as a lot of grumbling. But I have to say, uh, I uh, I felt pretty angry when I heard him say when you were asking him about. You know the subsidies, and and look, there's a, there's a lot of problems with that Australia uh, law. That's a subject. Kind of like day. a
1: Rupert Murdoch thing. to
0: Yeah, try it, to- exactly. But the fact that he said that he 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 said that he felt that it wasn't Facebook's place to subsidize an industry that is, and I'm I'm this is not an exact quote, but directionally mm-hmm. correct, that is getting so much more value from them than they are. So that news organizations are getting so much getting all the value from Facebook and giving none of it in return, I found that deeply offensive and also completely untrue. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean... uh, you know this is why <laughs> this is why uh, it, 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 you know the, the Facebook has not treated news organizations well. Um, it has not treated I think the public uh, well when it comes to um, making sure that um, fair and accurate information is um, amplified and false and harmful speech is not. And the notion that Facebook is giving all the value to news organizations and getting none in return, is just utter nonsense.
1: Right. And he did mention that Facebook has been pulling back on news in a big way. I think he said maybe 3% of content on Facebook is news. And that's not really a user generated decision. That's a Facebook algorithmic decision. Yeah. I wonder if it's better. And yeah, I wonder if it's better for the news industry and Facebook to just, you know, have a divorce (laughs) because if it would basically mean, okay, news organizations are going to lose traffic, but it was traffic. It was an audience largely. Um, And then Facebook can get on with doing the friends and family thing.
0: Well, there's two issues with that. One is societal and one is economic. The societal issue is if there is not quality news organizations represented on Facebook feed, what will continue to be there are uh, lies, rumors, innuendos, not evidence-based information. So, Hmm. and, you know, Facebook is very popular. So I would be concerned if there was, you know, no counter whatsoever to a lot of the, the nonsense that proliferates on Facebook. So that's the societal issue. The economic issue is that, you know, Facebook and other platforms are, you know, hoovering up most of the advertising revenue. Um, now, I'm not blaming, uh, uh, unlike many, I don't fault the platforms for the fact that they have built a better advertising vehicle than, say, newspapers. Um, but uh, the consequences for uh, for News organizations to be absent from that from that dialogue, uh, you know, it doesn't. It's going to just exacerbate the uh, the economic problems of news institutions.
1: Yeah, and I always for my for my you know mini news business, I always wonder like how much should I engage with the platforms or not, yeah. and. I am wary of doing business with Facebook. Yeah. I'm, I am doing business with LinkedIn, and I'm pretty happy about it. Yeah. But
0: Well, LinkedIn's, yes. LinkedIn is not Facebook. Exactly. N- n- almost none of these
1: other platforms yeah. are Facebook. And, it, you know, Facebook does have this history of – I mean, it's experimental as a tech company. You have to experiment. And sometimes that will mean putting money towards something and then pull it, pull it back. Yeah. But, I feel like the news the news industry has had the rug pulled from under its feet yeah. so many times that it's like... my
0: video! Yes, oh my goodness. That's the entire future. Oops, a yeah, few that, months later, never mind. That
1: lasted for a half second. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're talking here also about TikTok and how we've... Yeah. It's actually kind of interesting how news has started to evolve on TikTok, um, especially news about the Ukraine war. Uh, what's your view on, on TikTok? I mean, the ascent is unbelievable. I just uh, did a report talking about how... People now spend more time daily on TikTok. People who use TikTok now spend more time daily on the platform than the average user on Facebook ever did, wow. which is just astonishing. That is astonishing. What's your view on on the rise of TikTok? And, and yeah, I'd like to hear your perspective on how it's going to be used for news.
0: Well, they they built a pretty compelling product so you know
1: do you use it power to them yeah yeah i use it i use it i delete it i use i'm so addicted to it when i I use it and i'm like i can't do this i have to actually do some netflix instead yeah yeah that's my i'm a lurker though i'm a lurker Mm -hmm. i have i don't don't do the dances yeah yeah i I watch (laughs) the videos Maybe yeah. another life.
0: <laughs> no, no. Of course, I, I, I'm a lurker, and I and I too really like it. One, you know, what I, I would like to say. Well, it's necessary for me to be well versed in TikTok because of my job. But the fact is, I find it very it's entertaining. Fine. It's <laughs> really fun, um, and yeah, it is valuable for news. And we've seen a lot of, you know, even for, you know, we've seen a lot of really interesting, creative, user generated. Um, uh, Quality news and information on TikTok. You know the famous um, uh, uh, TikToker who starts off with a uh, makeup tutorial and then sort of uh, to try to, you know, mm-hmm. turn away everybody other than the women that that this TikToker is trying to reach, and then talking about the plight of the Uyghurs. You know that kind of thing is 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 really really compelling. Um, uh, That said, uh, you know, what we're in fact, um, the panel that I'm moderating here in in Davos is going to, in a little while, is going to get into this. We're going to talk about um, how in Russia, TikTok has actually been, you know, and and you can, and and, and depending on who you talk to, either inadvertently or uh, on purpose, uh, aiding and abetting the Russian propaganda efforts inside Russia and Mm. you have to wonder if a company that is controlled by Beijing what those motivations are so it this is not do not forget the Chinese ownership Um, that is a really really important part of the of the TikTok story that hasn't fully played out yet
1: yeah I think their cultural power is fascinating yeah we've seen it in the U.S. where um from reports that I've read they actually um had made some mistakes early on, taken down some content uh, in in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and then kind of turned up the volume on Black Lives Matter, uh, which uh, ended up sending lots of Gen Z kids out into the streets during those protests. Mm-hmm. There's also the famous example of I don't think this was TikTok manipulating the algorithm, but how TikTokers saw that Donald Trump was holding a rally oh, yeah, and a <laughs> um, had this meme where they began uh and mass buying tickets leading the Trump campaign to think that there was going to be yeah. a massive turnout. And it turns out that no one showed up. Right. And it was extremely embarrassing for the campaign, which had overflow capacity set up right, right, right. for TikTokers that that never planned to show up. It is great cultural power. And I I do wonder, like you do, about what happens when China, which is the government has shown a, a, not only a willingness, but an enthusiasm to go and tinker with content and tinker with algorithms.
0: Well, these are private companies. Yeah, these are private companies. They control the algorithms. They are protected by the First Amendment to and by Section Two Thirty to moderate their content as they as they see fit. So you know, buyer beware.
1: How do we know? How do we know if they would it just take a whistleblower if they put mm-hmm. their their thumb on the scale?
0: You, well, well, that's you know one of the things that we've been advocating uh, at at that Aspen Institute as part of our Commission on Information Disorder is uh, greater transparency. Uh, from the platforms to researchers and academics who can actually, uh, the more information they have, anonymized content, we're not talking about giving personal information to academics and researchers and journalists, but be able to track how stories move and to be able to track what's, you know, been algorithmically amplified and what hasn't and why across all of the platforms. This is vitally, vitally important. So that's one of our strong recommendations for that very reason.
1: Think they'll ever follow through with that?
0: Uh, there's some, actually, some some hmm. some movements around um, transparency. It's not as controversial as other, you know, other suggested, you know, uh, changes to laws like, you know, around Section 230, for example.
1: I'm going to now connect this discussion to a little bit of what we talked about earlier. Uh, I'm going to go back again to what Sagar and Jetty was talking about with the WEF. Um, he says uh, billionaires are good at one thing. It's the reason why they, you know, made so much money, but it makes them think they're qualified to do anything. That brings us now to our next platform, um, which is Twitter and Elon Musk's pursuit of the company. Now it's fascinating back and forth. You know, is he going to buy it? Is he not? As the more that Tesla stock goes down, the less likely I think it is to happen. But I want to ask you this. So you worked there as a head of news. Twitter was always telling us as reporters that people sort of underappreciated the cultural value and it wasn't reflected in the share price. Is it ironic that Elon Musk, who fully did appreciate the cultural value to the point that he wanted to go and use it, um, is the one who actually saw that argument through and made an offer to buy the company, which they accepted?
0: Yeah. First of all, uh, anybody that tells you they understand what's going on in the mind of Elon Musk is selling <laughs> you a bill. Of goods. No, I don't
1: think Elon even. No, I don't know, and know. I
0: have no idea. All I can, you know, I can barely follow the bouncing ball, so you know, I don't know what his motivation is. I mean, it strikes me just from where, where I'm sitting um, that you know, Twitter is his favorite toy, and he's a rich guy, so he wants to buy the toy company. Um, that's always the way it's felt to me. Um, it, really, because
1: he does. I mean, he he. It does fit a pattern though, because he does start these companies, with his view views, pl- ways that he can improve the world, for SpaceX trying to, you know, get human civilization on more than one planet, or Tesla trying to move us to electronic vehicles. Twitter, I could see the ideological... Mm,
0: I, I, uh, I think it's a little bit different. First of all, he started those companies, um, and his motivations around Twitter are suspect. Um, I don't, you know, he says he wants to... Yeah, he claims he wants to improve the world, but first of all, in all of his public pronouncements about Twitter, what he has demonstrated is ignorance about the way Twitter operates around content moderation, around what uh you know, he he throws out the term free speech. Well, who everybody's for free speech, of course. No, you know, that's motherhood and apple pie. But when you get when you dig a little bit deeper, he he's just he's he's all over the place. He doesn't seem to have A vision for what it is he wants to fix at Twitter. He doesn't seem to have a vision for how Twitter works. He doesn't seem to have, understand how Twitter makes money or doesn't make money. Um, And now he seems to be getting cold feet about the deal altogether. Um, One thing that seems apparent too is that he, you know, he seems to be getting a lot of adulation for, you know, things that he said about Twitter from the far right. And now it feels like he's playing more and more to them. So that's, that's a little disturbing.
1: Mm -hmm. What do you think happens? I don't know. I, I, I think I, he wants out that deal.
0: Oh, no, it seems like he yeah. wants out of the deal. But I kind of love that the Twitter board, you know, we can we, you know, I have my own complaints about how the Twitter board has handled a lot of things. But uh, I do like right now that they're playing hardball with them saying, what do you mean pause this? There's no such thing as a pause. This deal is on. You need to fulfill your end of the bargain. So we'll see what happens.
1: It does feel strange to me. I mean, the, the employees we, we talked about this last week, actually, when I was on CNBC, but the employees cheered. <laughs> the fact that the the board and the company leadership is holding steadfast. Yeah, yeah. However, I mean, maybe they'll get a payout. But however, it's likely that there's going to be mass layoffs if he comes in. And
0: I, I, Honestly, I yeah. think Twitter's in trouble either way. Right. If he well, comes now in, yeah.
1: Whew, if, he, if he walks away, that share price is going to fall through the, the floor. Yeah. I mean, Parag... Will remain the CEO, and I think he's done a terrible job. He hasn't shown any (laughs) vision. he's fired all his executives. No reassurement. He's He's either fired or they've left. Yeah. He he tells us he wants to go in a different direction with the company, but we don't know which one it is.
0: Well, this is a sad thing about Twitter. It's always had such leadership problems. You know, from from the from the very beginning, just read <laughs> Nick yeah. Bilton's book. I You know, I was so naive. I Nick Bilton, who was my old colleague when we were both at the New York Times together, wrote a book called Hatching Twitter about all of the drama and the leadership issues in the early days of Twitter. And I remember when I was getting ready to join, this was in 2013, mm. the book came out and I thought, oh, lucky me, I'm joining the organization, the company, after they've sorted out all of these issues, it's all behind them. Well, you know. Nope. You know,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: <laughs> as a narrow way to say she would find out <laughs> that the issues were not resolved.
1: Yeah. and I actually thought so I covered the company extremely closely uh, for for the five years that I was at BuzzFeed and I still cover them closely. I thought that Jack Dorsey did a decent job. Yeah. They were shipping product under him. He was the they best. He was the
0: best of the CEOs. He
1: was good. And it's so odd to see him yeah. now kind of throw that whole company under the bus I know, right? and encourage Elon to take it private. I and, know. You know, everything that that they, I mean, of course, there's he I, maybe he felt that um, ideologically the employees took a turn and he kind of couldn't control it anymore. Yeah, I, but it is so bizarre.
0: I know when he came in, you know, I when I was there, he he was not CEO. He came in as CEO after I left and the CEO, he he was a vast improvement over the previous leadership um, that was in place when I was at Twitter. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I thought he did of, of the various CEOs that Twitter has had. I thought he was. One of the best. But yeah, I don't know what's happened to him.
1: It's odd. And the business actually, he left the business in a good direction. Yeah, exactly. Up 37% the revenue in yeah. 2021 over 2020. We'll see what happens in 2022. It's going to be a mess.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Joe Biden's tech agenda. We heard a lot about the government getting involved in technology under Trump. Um, I don't think I've heard a single thing uh, from the Biden administration about wanting to do anything Um when it comes to tech, except for maybe the um, the disinformation governance board and Biden had been pretty outspoken about, like, wanting to break up Facebook. I mean, he has bigger problems right now. But what do you think is happening there?
0: Well, in fairness, they have a pretty aggressive uh, FTC. Right now in the Biden administration, and Lena Khan has not had her majority of commissioners until quite recently.
1: Just, so, she just approved the it, fifth one.
0: Exactly. So I think uh, we may see some actions. I think if anything's going to happen, you know, let's let's watch the FTC. I think that's going to that's going to be interesting um, over the next you know over the next two plus years and maybe beyond we'll see um but yeah that they, the white house itself yet hasn't really made a lot of moves um it's got some heavy hitters but not made a lot of moves and the and the um yeah the information. I always get the name wrong the information
1: governance disinformation governance board
0: disinformation <laughs> governance board was a um was there, the the it, now that i understand what the intent is it actually was quite a good idea in fact it It maps to another one of the recommendations from our commission on information disorder, which is to have a coordinating body, not a new agency, not an overlord, but just a coordinating body to know which parts of the government are doing what, which was the intention. But they really messed up the rollout. Mm -hmm. First of all, Disinformation Governance Board, you know, I'm not the first to say sounds downright Orwellian. (laughs) It does. It sounds
1: like, I I mean, it's a terrible name.
0: And so they put out the name and then they didn't explain what it was. The clearest articulation I heard of what it was intended to be was um, the briefings that they held once they decided to end the disinformation <laughs> governance board and the, uh, you know, and the would be head of it, Nina Jankiewicz, uh stepped down. They kind of hung her out to dry. You know, she she either chose not to or 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 was not, you know, uh, was not given permission to make statements about what their intention was. So, you know, it was just Really, really unfortunate kind of cell phone. Well, what,
1: what was it supposed to do?
0: It was supposed to be a. It was supposed to be an internal um, clearinghouse. Is not even. That's not even. That's even going too far. A, 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 a body that would be aware of the various research that is being done um, on the outside and the inside of government around um, around. Uh, Information disorder and information flows. It was not going to be dictate anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't didn't have any power or control to affect um, any acts. It was supposed to be a place where uh, you know a, a, a hub that understood what various parts of government were doing. And that is still needed and now I fear it'll never happen because you right. know they're not going to want to go down that road again.
1: What various parts of the government were doing in regard to disinformation. Research?
0: Uh, w- yeah, research, because, you know, the State Department is involved um, mm. with certain, you know, areas of this, the OSTP, the FCC, the FTC, you know, the uh, NTIA, you name it, the whole alphabet soup. There are various uh, agencies and institutions that are, you know, either touch, you know, broadcasters, touch the platforms, touch, uh, you know, are either aware or engaged with various uh information outlets, um, domestically and abroad. But there's nothing nefarious about it. Right. And this is something that every government has done. It's, you know, it's the government. You, I mean, it's, their, it's the federal government. And to be aware of what commercial entities are doing and how information is tracking and how that might or may or may not cause harm to citizens is one of the responsibilities of federal government.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because we do have the First Amendment, and so, yeah. of course, there's no – the government can't force stuff to be of taken down. Not.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I – but I have not – look, I'm not here right. to defend – I'm not part of the government. Yeah. I'm not here to be their spokesperson or to defend them. But I have heard not one inkling of a suggestion that this was about government ov- oversight over speech or what anybody is saying or even what the platforms are allowed to do or not do um, in terms of their First Amendment rights to regulating speech.
1: So a lot of times, so we've spoken a little bit today about um, disinformation, you know, lack of trust in in news. Um, Oftentimes this conversation misses one of the most important things, which I know you're aware of um, and care a lot about, and that is the decline of local news. If you don't have a reporter in your town and all you're getting is the national stuff, you you can't trust, can't trust um, what you see because there's no relation to it. So or you can, but it's just a lot harder. Well, where so? Where do you see the the direction of local news going in in the U.S. and right? maybe more broadly? I mean, right? We were, we have some interesting experiments. Axios, for instance, has thinks is the next line of publishers that thinks that it can yeah. get local news right. And I think they just acquired a local news newsletter in uh, San Francisco. They did, uh, yeah. and and they're they're moving this way. What do you think the state is there?
0: This is a this is a critical critical issue, not just in the United States, but everywhere in the world. Study after study, uh, over the course of generations, has shown that people trust their local news organization. People hate the media writ large, but they trust their local news organization. Um, and so, and and local news institutions are not just—they—they they serve so many purposes in a community. They—they they serve to stitch a community together. So in terms of civic pride, uh, they hold government officials or local businesses accountable um, just by showing up in, um, you know, whether it's in school board meetings or hearings or what have you, as a preventative measure against corruption. It keeps the local populations um, safe and informed about critical issues in their in their community. And when these go away, what fills the void is either national news, which first of all, is not as relevant to a local, uh, you know, a a citizen of a local community, but also tends to be more polarizing um, for a variety of reasons. But also what fills the void are what are called pink slime slights, which are basically um, uh, propaganda outlets uh, masquerading as journalism or, you know, Next door, Facebook groups, what have you, and local officials and local businesses. uh, Nobody's watching the store. It makes uh, corruption um, a, a greater possibility. And it can tear a community apart not to have that kind of critical institution, you know, some of the work that we're doing at the Aspen Institute is focusing on trying to uh, think about local journalism as infrastructure in the same way that you think about roads and bridges and libraries. Um, How do we think about the information needs of communities and why that is an institutional infrastructural pillar, just like, again, you know, like I said, schools and libraries. It's absolutely important. There are some great experiments that are going on in, uh, not-for-profit journalism, particularly uh, some wonderful work being done to make sure that communities of color and other underrepresented communities are being represented and able to tell their own stories and get that out in the world. Um, and yes, it, it, institutes like um, Axios are doing some great experiments, but overall, local journalism has declined. The business model of of your has collapsed and trying to cobble together the revenue to keep it alive is is
1: very very difficult we talked a lot about problems why don't we end talking about solutions i love talking about solutions on this show
0: oh god do you have any
1: uh no (laughs) Uh, that's why i'm asking the questions (laughs) um but i I, yeah i do want to hear if you think there's a an optimistic path where we end up in a society where we have you know less polarization and less divisions
0: so i'm gonna this is going to be a really twisted way to begin an answer about um, optimism, but I want to just uh, bring up the Russia-Ukraine war, um, which is horrific. Let me just be really clear how horrific this war is for so many reasons, um, uh, but first and foremost for the sovereign nation of the Ukraine that was completely, uh, brutally attacked, unprovoked, and has seen it's just so much death and destruction and, and a diaspora of its citizens around the world. That said, um, the fact that 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 a, a democracy was so starkly attacked and its borders breached, I think, in some ways, shined a bright light on how important a democracy is—a democracy like Ukraine. And it has galvanized, you know, Europe in a way that I think people have really surprised people. Um, you know, I look at the way sort of Poland has stepped up, Poland that's had its own sort of autocracy issues now there as the defender of democracy in Ukraine, and the way support has come in from all over the world. And I would like to believe that it has raised an appreciation for why democracy is so important and worth defending. And if we believe that democracy is worth defending, that has a trickle-down effect on so many of the other um, disorders that we've been talking about—the information um, disorders, um, you know, whether it's about, um, you know, the platforms, whether it's about journalism—I think all of those things can benefit from sort of a global sense of unity around this critical mission.
1: Yeah, I. I uh While you're speaking first of all i agree i think that um it reminded me of antonio garcia martinez was on the podcast a couple weeks ago and he said that like in his very red neighborhood there's now um ukraine flags hanging outside and there's this meme of people making fun of you know i support the current thing which has like a person you know surrounded by like lgbt flags and ukraine flags and saying you know these people are there's no core to them and they're just for the latest social issue and Antonio said, no, you know, this is not you can't you, this is not um, a current thing situation. It's yeah. about doing what's right. And it does bring so many yeah. people around together. Of course, we it never happened. And hopefully there's a swift end. Um, but Let's it is so. a war do- is clarifying event. Exactly. and It's bringing some real clarification. Exactly. Vivian Schiller. Thank you so much for joining.
0: Thank you. It's been fun.
1: Great having you on. All right, everybody. Well, um, we have this. This was a good tease because coming up on Monday, we have another conversation with Nick Thompson, who is the CEO of The Atlantic. We're talking all about trust in the media. So if you enjoyed this one, please stay tuned for that one. Um, thank you, Simon Hipkins from Key Pictures, for uh, doing, doing the recording and the audio. We have again discussion going to happen about this episode on LinkedIn. So please check it out. We're also posting the videos on YouTube, my page, Alex Kantrowitz. So go check th- those out as well. Um, that will do it for us. It's been a heck of a week packing the feed with three episodes this week, two coming your way next week, and then we'll go back to our regularly scheduled cadence. And if you've been following along, we really appreciate it. If it's your first time at Big Technology Podcast, I invite you to subscribe. Um, And if you're a longtime listener, we would love a rating. Um, Rating goes a long way. So if you're willing to do that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would be amazing. Until next time, take care.